1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This year is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Kelly Anderson about what design can tell us about the world.
2: I really think that design is a research tool to go into that unknown territory and be able to highlight the the reasons why things happen that may be hidden from us.
1: This interview was recorded in front of a live audience at the Northside Festival in Williamsburg, Brooklyn on June 11, 2015. Here's Debbie Millman.
0: Kelly Anderson says she loves things that do what they're not supposed to do. For example, she designed a wedding invitation with a paper record player that actually plays music. Kelly Anderson also says her work is all over the place, which is both literally true and a serious understatement. She's a photographer who puts a mirrored cube in landscapes and cityscapes from around the world. She's a web designer with a gift for data visualization. She's a groundbreaking graphic designer who loves old school letterpress. She's also the author of an extraordinary pop-up book called, This Book is a Planetarium, which is coming out this fall. She also lives just around the corner. Kelly Anderson, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so
2: much for having me.
0: Kelly, you describe yourself as an artist, designer, and tinkerer. What do you mean by tinkerer? What do you tinker?
2: Well, I think it's the easiest thing for me to say is that I'm a creative person who tinkers with things. Um, I think that tinker is kind of a goofy word on the one hand, but on the other hand, it implies a conversation with your materials. And so it implies that you're trying things and asking, hey, does this work? No. What's the reason for that? Let me try this. And so it's this continual inquiry with your materials. But tinkering is kind of a stupid word, I have to admit.
0: Oh, I love it. I think it's actually perfect. In your TED Talk, you declare that you like to tinker with everyday experiences. What do you mean by that? What kinds of experiences?
2: Well, I think we go through life a lot of the time, and we begin to take experiences for granted. So we'll see something over and over and over again, and it'll start to lose its meaning. Materially speaking, like I think paper is a good example because you know we're always getting bills in the mail on paper. We're used to like wiping our hands off on paper napkins, but paper really does have these extraordinary properties. Um, paper can be architectural. Paper can be aerodynamic. Uh, paper can amplify sound. Oftentimes, I try to find, like, the hidden talents of everyday things, like the things that we forgot that something does because we're so accustomed to using it in a certain way.
0: You grew up in New Orleans, but half of your family is from Brooklyn, and the other half is from Louisiana. How has that affected your accent, Kelly? My,
2: my accent is very confused. Um, <laughs> I, I think it puts me somewhere in the Midwest, actually, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, my, my, my grandmother has, like, the most darling New Orleans accent. And then the other half of my family came from Brooklyn and have this, like, sort of, like, New York, Brooklyn, Italian thing going on. And so um, I, I pretty much, I, I grew up watching a lot of PBS, and I think I inherited, like, whatever accent they had in the nature documentaries.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Your dad is a river pilot. Your mom was a stay at home mom, so where did your extraordinary creativity come from
2: well i 'm not sure exactly i 've always been a person who has been interested in art and i 've always made things, um, even when I was a little kid i was was drawing things and I, I think it it may have come out of it being like the most direct way that I could. Put a message out into the world. So when I was a little kid, I was completely obsessed with animals and just drew animal posters. And I was also really obsessed with this idea of like injustice. Like there are things that are not fair in life that we have to like turn around and make better. Um, And so, for example, well, I sort of learned about environmentalism when I was a very young kid and uh, learned that you know, the ecosystems of all of these animals were being depleted, and so I spent, like, my second and third grade art classes creating posters that would say things like, it's their world, too, and, like, there'd be, like, a really bad drawing of, like, a cheetah and a fox and (laughs) all running out of the woods. I think it was actually that desire to, like, actively change the world in some way that drove me into making art.
0: Kelly, I read that you used to sew pillows, tiny pillows, for each of your grandmother's many pet rabbits in an effort to provide them with a good night's sleep. Is this true?
2: Yes, it's true. (laughs) So talk to us about the little
0: pillows. What did they look like? How many did you make? What were the rabbits' response to them? Did they sleep better?
2: No, the rabbits didn't like them crowding their cage. But, um, you know, as a little kid, I was like, well, I get to sleep inside in this nice, warm, comfortable bed. And I just thought it was terrible that these adorable little creatures that I loved had to sleep outside in the hutch and didn't have proper bedding. And so I was learning how to sew. And so obviously, like, the thing that I wanted to sew was pillows so that they could achieve a good night's sleep.
0: (laughs) Ever think about putting something like that into the marketplace?
2: Well, it, it didn't work. I had kind of ignored it at the time as a <laughs> child. But um, now as an adult, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, more beholden to the feedback that the universe sends me. And the feedback the universe sends me is that rabbits do not want pillows.
0: Fair enough. You were also obsessed with physics. In what way were you obsessed with physics and has that obsession stayed with you?
2: It has. Um, you know, I'm I'm really interested in learning about how the world works. And I, I, I think one of the reasons I've gravitated towards design is because it's this experimental method for learning how the world works. And I was introduced, like many people, to physics and philosophy like in high school. And so um, I, I took a physics class and realized that it was like this whole framework for explaining the reasons behind why everything happened. Um, and so I immediately, you know, decided like, okay, well, when I go to college, I'm going to major in physics and I'm going to major in fine art. And it turns out that the intersection of those two programs just doesn't exist. Like people do not realize that this is like an in, in overlap that someone might want to pursue as an academic inquiry. So I just studied fine art.
0: Now, I read that you went to the University of Louisiana for your undergraduate degree by default. Why default? It doesn't seem like you'd be the kind of person that would do anything by default.
2: So in, in Louisiana, there's this, this great public funding for higher-level education program called TOPS, that if you get a certain GPA, that your full tuition... To college is paid for and so I had kind of worked out a, a deal with my dad I was like look I'm saving you money by going to undergraduate school like help me fund my grad school education and so that's exactly what I did I, I went to the University of Louisiana which was actually a, a wonderful school and I had such a great education there and it was very varied and very well-rounded and then I graduated in like three years and made a beeline straight for New York where I went to grad school at Pratt.
0: You completed your thesis on nuclear waste marker design. That's, that's a bit niche, a bit thin slicing here. Um, you described it as deep time design, but I'm not entirely sure what you mean by that. Can you elaborate? What is deep time design?
2: Yeah, so um, if you're familiar with the concept of, of, of deep space, deep time is kind of a, a parallel term. And it refers to design that plays out on a geologic time scale. And the reason you've never heard of it is because it basically doesn't exist. Um, design relies so heavily on its context to communicate anything at all um, that this project... Which was um, initiated by the U.S. government um, and brought together a panel of expert anthropologists and engineers and sociologists and designers and environmental graphic designers. Like, basically, came to the conclusion that you know, if if you're working on designing a project for a span of 10,000 years, there's there's almost nothing that you can do that will communicate as a universal. Um, they were trying to tap into things like biological universals. So, the idea of warning people that nuclear waste was underground by constructing these amazing installations of giant thorns, you know, that would immediately look like, oh, this is something that's going to hurt me, whether I'm a Stone Age man or a modern person. So, it was a really, really interesting project that really got into the mechanics of how design meaning is generated. That's why it was so interesting to me. What
0: did you discover about nuclear waste marker design? Is there Was there a, a thesis that you provided that allowed for understanding what the ramifications of nuclear waste long-term are?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's an important problem to address because basically nuclear waste is going to be dangerous for 10,000 years after you know it has cooled off and we buried it underground and the problem is is that language degrades faster than that so if we put a keep out sign up and try to explain why people cannot enter the site it's basically not going to work after a certain amount of time and so um, they were basically trying to figure out like what kind of solution might work, like would a spatial solution work, would a design solution work, would a series of icons work. Um, And this was all sort of guided by this uh, somewhat misguided premise that iconography like that, which was used for like the the 1984 um, Olympic Games, uh, was quote unquote universal, but it turns out that all design is tied into culture in some way.
0: Is it true that Vice Magazine contacted you about using the thesis and publishing the thesis all these years later?
2: Yeah, I don't know how they found it, but I guess it's floating around on the internet. Um, but yeah, they, they did a, um, basically like an expose about New Mexico's nuclear legacy. And um, they contacted me as an expert on the subject matter, which was <laughs>
0: hilarious. <laughs> After you graduated, you hightailed it straight to Brooklyn where you went to grad school. And you live now around the corner in a building that used to be an old sweater factory. We were commenting earlier on how this neighborhood is changed. I'm a native Brooklynite. I was born here. Um, You share your studio with your partner, Daniel Dunham, uh, a 1919 letterpress and an assortment of what you call other benevolent contraptions. What are benevolent contraptions?
2: Well, I graduated from art school where I basically studied fine art in grad school because I knew that it would give me access to whatever departments I wanted to because the term fine art is so is such an umbrella term that I could very easily find myself over in the photography department, and that'd be cool. Or in the design department, that'd be fine. I could teach a silk screening class, and that'd be fine too. It's like all part of my, you know, practice. Um, And so when I graduated, I had this moment of panic of like, how am I going to make things? Like, I'm going to have to pay people and produce things at a scale that I'm not going to be able to use my own two hands to make these things. And so I started collecting equipment and machines. And so right now I have this machine called a Craft Robo, which will cut out anything I can draw on my computer. And I also have a letterpress, so I can print my own projects and all kinds of cutting tools. And this whole encyclopedia of glue and piles of paper. So, you know, it was kind of about making my materials accessible. So if I woke up at 3 in the morning and, like, had, like, a great idea and wanted to finish a project, that I'd be able to do that. So this is my mindset coming out of grad school. As an adult now, I realize that there is actually value and, like, working with people who are experts in what they do and, like, will help you put that polish on your project. But, um, you know, to some extent, I like doing things myself. Like, I I like having that knowledge. Like, um, there's actually this Robert Frost poem about two tramps in the woods. They are looking for work, and there's a man who's cutting down a tree for firewood, and they say, can we help you? We need money. Um, And the whole poem is about him like saying no to that that i want to keep this work for myself because i love it you know and i i I don't want to give it to someone who (laughs) needs it for money and so i i kind of relate to this poem in this very odd way and um yeah and have to go out of my way to actively make the decision to actually break up the work and give it to other people who might be better at doing it
0: (laughs) After you graduated, you went to work for a digital firm, but promptly quit after four months and stated on the great discontent that you quickly realized that you were not made for a traditional full-time job. Why and what are the alternatives for you?
2: Yeah, it's true. Um, having a, a full-time job, it felt to me like high school, there were a whole lot of rules and reasons for why I had to do things at certain times of day that didn't make any sense to me and did not improve the quality of the work. Um, and so, I, I basically became a teenager again—that I was rebelling against authority—and it was really, it was really fun and uh, it was really exciting because I got to think about like all the ways that my time would be better spent. Um, but ultimately, you know, I just realized I'm I'm not cut out for full time work, and so um, after that, I was lucky enough to get a part time job at the American Museum of Natural History in their photo archives, working as a collection photographer, which suited me perfectly because the hours were flexible. I just had to go in 20 hours a week. Um, I got to work with. All of these amazing materials from the institution's history so things like glass plate negatives from uh, the Perry expedition uh, you know images of Charles Darwin like the last you know some of the last photos that were taken of him when he was on his deathbed so these are like Incredible. physical glass plate negatives that you could hold in your hand very carefully wearing gloves and I was digitizing all of those so they'd be around for future generations
0: you just finished a big beautiful project for russ and daughters talk to us about that project how did you get that project
2: okay so this is this is amazing and random and this is why it's great to be a designer because i can dream up projects that i want to do but then also these things come to you like completely out of the blue that you couldn't have anticipated and and russ and daughters was was one of those projects Um, uh, Jen Snow, who's this really wonderful woman who works for Russ and Daughters um, in, like, a PR capacity, although her business card says Yenta, she kind of, like, does everything. Well,
0: t- and tell us, if you can, what Russ and Daughters is for those in the audience that might not know.
2: Yeah, so um, Russ and Daughters is a 100-year-old institution. It's considered an appetizing store uh, because in, in Jewish tradition, you have to keep uh, the fish and the dairy separated from the meat. And so um, New York City used to be covered in these places, these appetizing stores, but um, now there's there's only like two or three that still exist, and, and Russ and Daughters is definitely the most famous one. Um, for everyone who's listening outside of New York, you know, Russ and Daughters is... They basically have carried forth this tradition of salmon and cream cheese and bagels. Like the things that we associate with being New York City food, like they 're the ones who have brought it into like the modern era, um, so yeah, I was really, really super excited and also excited by the complete randomness when, when Jen Snow emailed me and said, hey you know we 've had this this counter institution where people have to stand up uh, and eat their sandwiches or go to the park or something, and we are." We want to create a sit-down restaurant out of this concept. And we we realized we needed a graphic designer because we haven't worked with a graphic designer in, like, 40 years. So I got to step in and look at the uh, amazingly fun mishmash and chaos of uh, an institution that basically never had graphic design on purpose and figure out how to translate that um, in a way that would appeal and make the case for it being, like, this really cool thing to a modern audience. And how did you do that? Well, we, uh, we really played up the idiosyncrasies. Uh, you know, Russ and Daughters is a really unique place. They have this really strange logo, which is this fish R, which that doesn't make any sense. Like a fish is not an R shape. Like there's no reason for this logo to exist. But um, we took it and we're like, you know, this is like, it's really weird, but you know, it. This has happened because of a historical reason, and we want to honor that. You know, so um, I took their logo and very like lovingly finessed it into like a more appealing shape that made sense in terms of like you know the laws and rules and balance of design, um, but you know, kept it as this amazing thing that was, was made and brought forward through history.
0: You recently started working on a new pilot program called the Adobe Creative Residency, wherein Adobe will be sponsoring you, Kelly Anderson, essentially allowing you complete independence on creative projects of your own choosing. So does this mean no client work for a year? You could just do whatever you want. It's sort of like a MacArthur Fellow, right?
2: Yeah, it is kind of like that. Um, yeah, I have a whole year of freedom. It's <laughs> <That's> amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. What are you going to do with that year of freedom? Well, so far I've been finishing the book project that I've been working on for a year and a half. Uh, the uh, little tiny pieces of which are still scattered all over my apartment floor. So it's been it's been such a whirlwind um, these last couple of weeks trying to get that out the door because. That was one of those projects where it's like, it's done, and then it comes back, and then it's not done, and so um, yeah, dealing with those emergencies have been my my first priority. But you know, really, like I I really believe in the idea that design can be used to explore the world. You know, that design teaches us that there's a direct correlation between how things are put together. And what those things do, um, and that the practice of design can unearth like a lot of like interesting and unique knowledge about what things mean and how they got to be the way they are. And so, I really want to use my residency to explore that idea and figure out like how to make objects that are demonstrations about how things work that people can experience and interact with um and also just like better better articulate it verbally you know to talk about these ideas with people
0: when i was watching your ted talk i was struck by something you said you declared that you were fascinated with the invisible authority things have over our brains what do you mean by that
2: I mean, I definitely think that there are invisible forces at play in the world. There are invisible forces at play in the physical world. There's invisible forces at play in the cultural and social world. And so when I make a design project um, and put it out in the world, like it's either going to work or not work. You know, people are going to get it or they're not going to get it. And there's real reasons for that. And if we ask why and we try to identify those reasons, then we are finding this unique knowledge and being able to bring it into the world, You know, knowledge that hasn't yet been articulated. Um, and so I really think that design is a research tool to go into that unknown territory and be able to highlight the, the reasons why things happen that may be hidden from us.
0: So design as behavior. And yeah. Behavior as design.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the reason why I floated over to design from from fine art is because, you know, design only exists in what it does. It's about its effect. You know, it's about its interaction. Um, design in a vacuum is nothing. Which is why the nuclear waste design project just didn't work. It just didn't communicate. It's totally dependent on being an intervention in everyday life, um, and so. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of amazing, and it really distinguishes the field. Like, there's so many fields where you don't have that feedback. You know, that there isn't that connection with the real world. And um, I, I love that design is 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 risky and fulfilling in that way. That you can put it out there and just see what happens and see what effect it has.
0: You have your first book coming out from Chronicle Books this fall. It is titled, This Book is a Planetarium. And I I want to share with the audience uh, the official description of it because it's that unique and and that charming. Never has humble paper had such radical ambitions. Defying every expectation of what a book can be, this pop-up extravaganza transforms into six Fully functional tools. A real working planetarium protecting the constellations. Projecting the constellations. A musical instrument complete with strings for strumming. A geometric drawing generator. An infinite calendar. A message decoder. And even a speaker that amplifies sound. Artist Kelly Anderson contributes enlightening text alongside each pop-up explaining the scientific principles at play in her constructions and creating an interactive experience that's as educational as it is extraordinary. Inspiring awe that lasts long after the initial pop This book is a planetarium, leaves readers of all ages with a renewed appreciation for the way things work and for the enduring magic of books. Kelly, what made you decide to take on this humongous, humongous opportunity?
2: You know, it actually, it it came out of another project, honestly. Um, Doesn't everything? (laughs) Yeah. I think everything good in life really does come out of other projects. Um, But, like, a couple of years ago, I made this paper record player wedding invitation for some of my friends who were getting married. Um, There's this couple who are are, are extraordinary, my friends Karen and Mike, and they're both really into music. And so um, we decided to make this booklet style invitation that has a flexible record attached to the back and then inside the middle page um, is this page that has a crease down the middle of it that you can you can tint down like a tone arm and there's a needle at the very bottom of it and you can set that needle in the groove and then manually turn it with your hand and so we all kind of Felt like geniuses when we figured this out and got it to work, even though like Mr. Wizard like did it on Nickelodeon like you know 20 years ago or whatever. Um, so I made an addition of 200 of these things for their wedding, and um, people really liked it, and it was it was really a great experience using it. And um, so I know it went viral.
0: I think it was a little bit more than people just liking it.
2: Yeah, I guess it went viral. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so like I kind of like had to step back from that and think about like, okay, what's the value in this and where do I go from here? Because there were a lot of offers for companies who wanted to like make them on a massive scale so that everyone's wedding could have a paper record player and like all these things that were just kind of lame and kind of did a disservice to like what I thought was like philosophically cool about it and what I realized is that you know we all have been told that sound is vibration you know you you know this from your science tech books you know it from school you know that sound is vibration but you don't really feel that like your interaction with sound is usually like you just push play and magically sound comes out And so your first-hand experience is at odds with your second-hand inherited knowledge about what this thing is. And that paper record player really bridged the gap between the two, that not only did you know that sound was vibration, but you could actually feel the vibrations happening as you turned your finger around. And so I was like... That's actually what's cool about this. And where do I go from here with that? Um, And so when Chronicle contacted me with a different project, I was like, thanks for thinking of me. I want to do this project instead. And I pitched them the book, and now it's going to really happen. Like, it's really happening. It's almost done.
0: Kelly, thank you for making so many magical things for us to Google and enjoy. You can find out more about Kelly Anderson and keep up with her many projects on her website, kellyanderson.com. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with
1: you again soon.